Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. We are coming to the tail end of 2022 and what a year it has been. For Australian media, we reported on a pandemic, a war, multiple natural disasters, COP27, and of course, all through the lens of a federal election year. But one issue has been strongly and unwaveringly on our front pages and posed within our press galleries, the treatment of women and the reporting of harassment and violence against women and children. Now, a content warning, this episode will be discussing the media reportage of violence and harassment. If you or someone you know is impacted by or experiencing sexual assault, domestic or family violence, please phone 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. For counselling advice and support for men who have anger, relationship or parenting issues, call the Men's Referral Service on one 300 Now, to take a look back and reflect on the year that was 2022, we are joined by Amber Schultz, the Associate Editor and Investigative Reporter for Crikey. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Jane Gilmore, author, journalist and consent educator, and also the instigator of the Fixed It campaign, which started in 2014, which fixed news headlines with the tones of victim blaming. Jane, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks very much for having me here. So let's jump straight in. 2021 was quite a year of reporting on harassment and violence, and many dubbed it the beginning of a reckoning in Australia. How do you think the momentum and tone shifted in 2022 in our media reporting? Amber, I'll go to you first. I think it was really interesting because there was so much anger and momentum um, and, and passion behind, you know, women standing up against sexual violence. But I think especially in the first half of the year, a lot of it fell flat. You know, while the media were holding, you know, especially parliamentarians and politicians accountable a lot of uh, what they were doing was um, pretty poor so we did have the uh, acknowledgement to parliamentary survivors or survivors of assault and harassment um, in in parliament uh, in February but you know it was a little bit lackluster the the victims weren't initially invited Um, Scott Morrison initially didn't even plan to address parliament so there was this huge groundswell and anger but in the first year it didn't really result anything in anything it really was just um a continuation of of people being you know rightfully upset 
And Jane, how do you think the tone shifted between 2021 to 2022 on these issues? I think the tone shifted in some areas of independent media and with some female journalists in mainstream media. But I think what happened even in 2022 was a lot of male journalists, male politicians, I think just men in general assumed that this was just a women's issue. So they sort of dropped tools and stood back and, you know, let's let the women have their little thing about it and then just picked up and carried on as normal. So exactly what Amber said, that the male politicians really didn't understand that that groundswell of anger didn't come from a single incident. It came from a lifetime of incidents. And I think that reporting has carried on as well, that that the, a lot of the mainstream media still thinks of men's violence against women as a women's issue. They will leave it to the female reporters. They don't think of it as what it actually is, which is a health story and a human rights story and a medical story and a legal story and an education story. They think of it as a women's issue. And it is, I mean, certainly it affects women, but it is also primarily a men's issue in many ways. So when it's just sort of shuffled off to the female reporters and the women's section and the, the women's issues, then the rest of mainstream media seems to think it can just carry on as normal. And I don't really see a lot of that changing, to be honest. And we'll definitely be talking about that idea of it being, this idea of it being a women's issue. But I wonder, at the start of this year, we had the famous side-eye glance from Grace Tame towards the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Do either of you think that changed the tone or, or kick-started a new conversation about the representation of women in the media? I think it's remarkable that refusing to smile is such a political act that for Grace Tame to refuse to continue the paradigm of abuse where she had to be nice to a man in power and shore him up and give him credibility and aid him aid him in hiding his secrets to refuse to do that so publicly was such an act of political courage and personal courage that again i think it inspired a lot of women to have a look at how much of that they do, how much placating and smoothing over and smiling when on the inside they're boiling with rage. But again, I think, you know, we're going back to the misogyny speech. It was 10 years since the misogyny speech and so many men just missed it. They didn't understand the significance of it and I could see it in the report, a lot of the reporting in the mainstream news from male journalists. They really didn't get it. Why isn't she smiling? Why isn't she being polite? Mm. I think it was really interesting to see because the Me Too movement, you know, one of the main purposes of it was it was giving a name to something that every woman felt, you know, it it might not be direct abuse, it might not be, it's being told to smile or being told to placate men or be polite if you think something is wrong. And, you know, I, I absolutely agree with Jane that a lot of the male reporters took issue with that and said, well, it's, a, you know, it's a woman's job to be polite, but for... I think a lot of women and especially a lot of women journalists, it was so lovely to have a conversation out in the open about something, you know, as seemingly normal as, as feeling forced or coerced to be polite and to placate men. So it was amazing to see that be given so much focus and attention that a refusal to smile actually means so much more than what it meant in that moment. And we've seen some 
powerful journalism this year from the Bruce Lerman case to the reporting on missing and murdered First Nations women. Are we seeing a ripple effect of this media reporting on holding the powerful institutions to account? That's a really tough one because I think what we consistently see is goodwill and report and inquiry, but, you know, not not enough changes. So we have the new um, national plan to, for prevention of uh, violence against women and their children. And, you know, that's a really historic plan. That's really exciting that it's come out. But again, it's sort of lacked clear data, clear timeframes, you know, clear specific outcomes that, that we had all hoped to see. Um, so I think there is a risk that, you know, while we do have all this amazing reporting, we do have people holding power to account more and more. Uh, it is easy to get lost and, and for that to fizzle away because we get announcement after announcement that things are changing. But when you look at the data, it's not. Yeah, I completely agree with Amber on that, that what we get is statements about change, but very little change. And I think the what happened with Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lerman was a very good example of that, that it was reported in the media as the Brittany Higgins trial. And she pointed that out in her statement that it, there was a reason for that. It looked like she was the one on trial. But the law reforms that we're seeing, even the things that are happening in New South Wales and Victoria on changing the definition of consent to an affirmative consent model, I don't see how they're really going to make any changes to the sort of thing that happened to Brittany Higgins and happens to so many other women in trials. And a lot of that we don't see in the reporting. There's reasons for it that are to do with legal restrictions and to do with restrictions on resources. But it is possible to report on the sort of things that happen in rape and sexual assault trials without identifying victims or the accused that can demonstrate how unjust those trials are. And I think a lot of the reason that that's not done is, again, it's dismissed as a woman's issue. At most, it's a crime issue where you just get the typical reporting of defence attorney said this, um, or defence lawyer said this, um, DPP said that, end of report. But we don't get that really analytical reporting of what is the justice system or as I think of it more of the legal system, what is it actually doing? What is it achieving? And what needs to change to get better outcomes for everyone? And I mean, the Bruce Lerman case is one of the biggest stories of the year. But as you mentioned, there has been some issues with the reporting and trying to get that balance of responsibly and respectfully reporting on it. How did you go about doing this reporting with the ethical and the the legal considerations that you had to make? Um, Jane, I'll go to you. Um, Well, Amber's probably a better place to answer that question. She was doing a lot more reporting than I was. But I I think it is always for journalists a very difficult line to walk between ethical reporting and keeping on the right side of the legal requirements, which are part of the system that is designed to support perpetrators and blame victims. Now, I would never, ever want to make any changes to the legal system that reduces the presumption of innocence or the right of the accused to not have to incriminate themselves or be forced to testify. But there is really no way of balancing that against trauma-informed or ethical treatment of 
victims of rape in the legal system. And that does extend to the reporting of it. But what we're not seeing is the reporting of that conflict. And mm -hmm. I think that's a problem. Although I have to say, I think Amber did do some of that. Thank you. But, uh, yeah, I felt very, very muzzled after that. I had a few pieces uh, spiked and I thought, you know, I, I don't think they, um, you know, they certainly had the presumption of innocence and it was talking just about how unfairly women are treated and it was just sort of the lawyers saying we can't do this this is too you know uh, his team is too litigious so it, it is really tough and it is really disappointing as a journalist to really be made to step out of that scene when it is such a momentous um such a momentous case and it does warrant commentary it does warrant an analysis and um sort of sympathizing with with anyone that has to go through that system and there have been some major court cases this year in the spotlight. We've had um, the Bruce Lerman case, Roe v. Wade, uh, Depp v. Heard. In many ways, the year has been a culture war with women's rights and their right to a voice in dispute. How do you both see the year through these cases and these big themes? Uh, I found it quite interesting how quickly the culture wars started, especially with the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. Um, and how quickly the rhetoric shifted from, you know, we should support women, uh, victims are imperfect, things like that. And again, I'm not making judgments on the Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp trial. It was messy. They were both, you know, had allegations of violence. But it shocked me how quickly women were quick to denounce Amber Heard. Um, and I think one of the reasons was, was she that was this imper imperfect victim, which is tough because in many ways she fits the kind of, uh, palatable victim that I think the media often seeks to look at you know she's she's well spoken she's rich she's well represented but even then there were you know people you know, analyzing how she reacted in certain situations to kind of say that she she wasn't a victim or or this was impossible she was clearly manipulative and regardless of who was right in that trial um, it was just shocking to see how quickly people jumped to the other side of the fence or how quickly it turned into a cultural and how quickly people were willing to use that case to represent the entire Me Too movement, trying to draw a line and say this is how the Me Too movement should or shouldn't work, when it was a single case out of, you know, literally billions of victims. Yes, and I, I think all of that's true. And I also think that all those cases and legal changes that you're talking about are about, at their heart, they're about ownership of your bodies, that that women are not assumed to have ownership over their own bodies in the way that men are. Men fully inhabit their body and they have the right to remain inviolate and to go anywhere and be anywhere in ways that women don't. And that's really the essence of what those laws are regulating, that, that women's bodies, if they're pregnant, don't belong to them, that women's bodies don't belong to them if they are seen as belonging to a man. So if that man then becomes violent, well, he had some right to in ways that don't work in reverse. So often I think when people are getting angry or taking sides or assuming that somebody's lying underneath it is that idea that, but women don't have those rights. They don't have that automatic right over their own body to decide what happens to it, to defend it, to to fully inhabit it and be safe in it and be in public in that space in the same way that men do. And I think that's, it's a much more ephemeral thing, but I think that's really what the arguments are about. And people find it very threatening, I think. 
to to assume that women have those rights in the same way that men do and so they try and take them away by law and that's really what happened in America with Roe v Wade. And I guess then what is the role of the media in reporting on those cases and and um, reporting on those diverse voices as well? I think uh, the Roe v Wade versus Debt v Heard is a very interesting comparison in Australia. I think the Debt v Heard thing was turned into entertainment and it shouldn't have been. You know, we had cartoons, we had memes, we had, you know, TikTok reels. Um, and it, it was advertised on Disney Plus as, you know, a tune into this to this case as entertainment. I think the Australian media largely failed in sort of pointing out some issues with, you know, withdrawing a line on Debt v Heard. But I think when it came to Roe v Wade, I was quite heartened actually um I expected to see a lot of fear-mongering about you know how this could trickle down to Australia or how we'll have our abortion rights taken away from us and I think the media you know largely thanks to, to experts who know what they're talking about were very clear in saying it it's pretty uh unprecedented that anything would change here or that there would be a groundswell of support because you know the the anti-abortion movement in Australia is is quite small so it was it was heartening to see that I agree with that. I think there there is a role in the media for more analysis, not just straight out opinion pieces, but knowledgeable analysis about what, as Amber said, with the the Depp v Heard case, what does it mean? What does it, how do we interpret what's happening in another country and under their laws? How do we interpret that in Australia? How does it affect the way we think about those issues, the way our laws react to those issues, and the same with with Roe v. Wade, it either did, it seemed to polarize to just straight factual reporting or op-ed, or as Amber said, TikTok videos. But I didn't see a lot of knowledgeable and intelligent analysis, which I think is lacking for something that's greatly lacking in a lot of these issues in Australian media. And when looking at these cases. I'm interested, do you think the defamation laws have made the Australian media too cautious when reporting on allegations of violence and harassment? Absolutely, uh, 100%. Um, and I think we really saw, you know, with the Jeffrey Rush case, um, we saw almost immediately the impact that they ha- that had. You know, I've spoken to lots of journalists, myself included, that had had stories spiked, um, not because we didn't think we could back them up, but because of the risk of defamation, you know, Kate McClinant and Jackie Millay had the big investigation into Dyson Hayden, and they had to sit on that for quite some time until the court released its own report to be able to to talk about that. And it's it's such an issue uh, that people are scared away from it. Obviously, you need a very, very high standard of evidence and a very good defence um, you know, if you're going to be reporting these stories on a on an individual. But I, I do think it's just had this shock and fear factor in, in the media where lawyers as well are so worried about it that everyone just backtracks, not just because of the threat of defamation, but because of how high the stakes are, how large the payouts can be. And it's it's really had a ripple effect throughout the media. And I do think that that's why our Me Too movement really took a long time to get off the ground. You know, we're about three years behind everyone else and and waited until the parliamentary reckoning until we had this big groundswell. We didn't have it at the same time as everyone else did, largely thanks to the fact that we have the strictest defamation laws in the world. And I think it's also worth pointing out that perpetrators of violence know that and Mm. they use it as a weapon that Mm. a 
a lawyer's letter threatening defamation can sometimes be enough to put a stop to a story that actually has a lot of evidence behind it because the risks involved are too high. And, and I understand editors who are risk averse in this because of what happened in the Jeffrey Roche case. But it's it's absolutely something that they use that I know that perpetrators have used as a weapon to silence women who want to speak publicly at, about the things that have happened to them. And it's chilling. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. This week, we're talking about how the media reported on the big stories of 2022. I'm joined by Amber Schultz and Jane Gilmore. Now, I want to take us back to the start of this year when Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame held a national press club conference together. And there was this comment made that of the 22 journalists that posed questions, only one question posed was by a man. So I'm curious, what are the issues with only sending female journalists to stories that are deemed women issues, should the responsibility be on women's shoulders or is it important that women lead the media coverage to bring the adequate sensitivity to the story? Where, where, Where's the line here? I'd like to know why men can't bring adequate sensitivity to that story if we're siloing these issues so that only women are speaking about them and only women journalists are reporting them, then we're assuming that only women readers or, or, or audiences are consuming that news. Again, it becomes a women's issue that we're allowing men to abrogate responsibility for this issue at all. They don't need to talk about it or think about it or read about it because it's just a women's issue. So I do find it troubling that there were no or very few male journalists at that NPR address because almost every other NPR address I've ever seen, the vast majority of the journalists there are men. So I I am troubled by this and just this idea that, oh, well, men wouldn't be able to do it properly. Why not? Men do all kinds of stories properly. I'd think it maybe we can give them enough credit and if they don't have the right to that credit, then they can go and get some training on how to report these sort of stories properly. I love this question because I'm really torn about it. I, I don't have an answer and I've thought about it a lot. So as an example, I was in Canberra when Scott Morrison was responding to Kate Jenkins' report on, on parliamentary sexual violence. Uh, and I was walking down to, to go view the press conference in person and there was a female journalist from another publication who was walking down and then got a text and they said, no, we're going to send a more senior male journalist and I was like what why shouldn't she cover it you know she's a she's a woman in parliament isn't this relevant and now and then I thought well you know actually isn't it more give more weight to the issue if they're sending someone more senior so it's a really confusing area because I think you know without the training women are going to ask better questions they're probably going to report on it better because they understand the issue just simply by having experienced it in their lives um but that doesn't mean that men should shy away from it and I think Jane's point about training is really really important you know we've saw, we've seen a lot of um incredibly cooked commentary from like Andrew Bolt about sexual violence and just the incredible lack of understanding so many male reporters have on this pervasive issue now this doesn't mean that they shouldn't report on it it means they should educate themselves before they do so I'm a huge advocate for 
men and women both reporting on this issue, let's not silo it away, but make sure they have the tools to do so properly. And they're not just relying on their, their own experience as men to report on it, you know, that they know that they have a trauma-informed approach, they know the data, they know the statistics, rather than just sending anyone willy-nilly. And I just also have to add to that, that this is the only area in which journalists would be reporting on something as complex as this with no training. You wouldn't send a political journalist to report on a football match without any training in sports reporting, because that would just be unthinkable. But and you, vice versa, you wouldn't send a sports reporter to report on the federal budget. Obviously, if that was somebody was to change like that, they would require training. They would require some mentoring. They would be expected to go and learn themselves. But nobody expects male journalists to make that effort or get that training or get that guidance on this issue. And again, I think it comes back to at senior levels in mainstream media, it's considered not particularly important and only a women's issue and not particularly complex. And none of those things are true. Mm-hmm. One thing that was, uh, again, quite quite good to see is for a lot of these issues, when there were male reporters there, you know, it can be at press conferences, very combative, whoever has the loudest voice gets in and, and sometimes those are men. Uh, and when it was came to, to gendered violence, a lot of the male reporters actually stepped back, made sure a lot of the women got their questions in first and then asked their own. And I think that was a, a very good approach to take, um, sort of understanding that they're maybe learning a little bit more about this space and letting women have the floor for at least the first few minutes uh, before they stepped in. And when looking over this year in media reporting um, in Australia, what story do you think should have possibly received more attention, but didn't. I think there's any number of stories that there's not one single story that needed more attention. There's literally thousands of them that the number of First Nations women and children who've gone missing, who've been killed, that are never given any airtime in mainstream media, the, um, the, effects of the legal system on people who are living with the effects of violence is something that very rarely gets reported and is often just dismissed as a a lefty issue rather than an ongoing cycle of poverty, trauma and incarceration that actually affects all of us. I think the way domestic and family violence is still reported as often a series of isolated incidents or as just a crime issue rather than the social issue and the, as I said, health, medical, human rights, justice issue that it is. I really do think that mainstream news hasn't fully understood how all these things are connected and how to report them as the connected things that they are rather than just the only way they've ever been reported, which is in crime and court reporting, they're still struggling to make that adjustment. Mm. I would uh, say, you know, similar to what we talked about earlier, just this idea of not being placated by announcements or by plans, but actually looking at continuous outcomes, you know, constantly holding the government to account. For instance, uh, you know, the current uh, government has yet to release a code of conduct for MPs. And this is something that's been raised since the 70s, uh, but obviously was in Kate Jenkins' report uh, that, you know, 
parliamentarians need a code of conduct. And it's sort of this idea, well, we've got an inquiry, we have a report, and it's just, I think journalists need to constantly ask what is the outcome, not what's the announcement, but what is the actual change and outcome that we want to see. Right, the focusing on the action rather than um, just the talk and the announcements. So finally, what lessons do you hope the Australian media will take from this year into 2023? I hope that it continues to be ongoing slow change, led by the example of some of the truly outstanding journalism that's been done about gender-based violence and its connection to poverty. There are some really good journalists doing good work in this area and I hope those people are acting, continue to act as inspirations to other journalists. I think one thing that I would like to truly like to see is journalists have a beat. We have journalists that do crime reporting or political reporting or financial reporting. To the best of my knowledge, in mainstream media, there is no mainstream media outlet that has any journalists that specialise in gender-based violence. We used to. There used to be quite a number of them, but I don't believe there are anymore. And I don't understand how this such a huge issue that affects every single person in the country can be something that is just thrown to whoever happens to be on the front desk at the time. It requires a huge amount of knowledge to understand and be able to ask the right questions, as Amber said, keep pushing for the right answers. I think often the reason that we, that journalists are accepting the announcements is because they don't really understand what goes on behind it. If you see um, finance journalists, for instance, will push back on economic announcements because they understand what it means. You need to have that understanding and that training and that trauma-informed approach to be able to do this properly. I would really, really like to see in the next year or two some journalists taking on that training and taking on that specialty and doing that kind of reporting to the really excellent level that I know there are many journalists who are capable of doing. Exactly. And I, I would agree with Jane in that I'd love to see some more holistic reporting um, rather than just reporting on an individual allegation or court case, um, actually tying it into the broader movement, looking at the drivers, looking at the data and trying to understand how everything ties into one another rather than just sort of stating the facts of one particular instance. And on that note, I'd like to thank our guests, Amber Schultz and Jane Gilmore for being on Fourth Estate. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next year and, of course, some of our top coverage over the holiday break. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU. Thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. Have a safe and happy new year. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening. <laughs>